If you are a believer in Jesus, it is because God has shown you who Jesus really is. Shepard and I, uh, three weeks ago, we went to the George H.W. Bush Museum in College Station for a project that he was working on, on President Bush, because that's what the whole thing's about. And I texted some friends who had lived in College Station. I know that it's pretty popular around here. I know that it's not popular among all of you, but many of you love the idea of Texas A&M. I texted one uh, young man who grew up at this church and said, Hey, where should we go eat? Because I feel like you should prep for things properly. And he said, If you want steaks or, or chicken fried bacon, which is a real life thing, by the way, and other southern fare, there's a Sodalax, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, over in Bryan. It's not too fancy, but it is really good eating. There were signs in the restaurant about eating at your own warning. Uh, you know, anyway, uh, all of my recommendations, he went on to say, may include an unhealthy amount of grease and or fried things. If you want healthier options, you might need to talk to someone else, LOL, ha ha ha. As I walked into the museum, we started to look around. And for a child who was in high school in the 90s, a nostalgia bomb dropped on top of me. You're walking around and you're remembering uh, President Bush. You're thinking about uh, his office, his time in office. You're thinking about what he went through as the president. And as you're coming to your conclusion, uh, because it works chronologically through his life, you see the, what took place when he ran against Clinton in 92. And there was a sign up that looks like this. This was the largest insult that I could find in the entire place. Bill, you're just blowing smoke. I read that and thought, you know, that's pretty civil compared to what we deal with now. That is before the Babylon Bee was bought by politicians. But as we look at that we, and consider what it's like now, we have a nonstop cycle of political commentary where everyone is an expert and every expert has a channel. You know, when you were a kid and I was a kid, there was a crazy political uncle that you would only deal with at Thanksgiving and you would avoid by going to get more yams as if anyone really likes yams. He's now wide open on TikTok and people love him. People think that he's the best. Imagine that you align with an upstart political leader who says that he plans to change the entire world. It's a, it's a grassroots effort. You join in, you canvass the streets, going from door to door, place to place, knocking. You are paying financial, uh, your resources to support his campaign. You deal with the opposition. You begin to gain momentum. Your person gains a massive following. Opportunities are flowing in from the left and from the right. There's a massively big speech that's coming up. A new crowd that might push him over the edge and push out your enemies. You are thinking to yourself, if this person is giving this position, they will change the entirety of the world candidate who you have been supporting, who you have been walking with, takes the stage. The first words out of his mouth are this, I am going to die. That doesn't really raise support. 
But he goes even further, and by going further, it seems to get even worse. Because he tells anyone who would align with him, if you follow me, there's a likelihood you'll die too. If you follow me, you are to be shaped by that death every day. This doesn't cause any type of political alignment, but it's the very message that Jesus has called us to be part of. The church of Jesus, the hope that we find in Jesus, should be a place of sanity in a very fringe-focused world, one friend of mine says. We have Jesus in Mark chapter 8 as he is carrying through, living in the midst of his disciples as he sees Peter confess that he is the Messiah. Peter aligns with Jesus. He is wholeheartedly in. Jesus then tells Peter, I'm going to die. Peter pulls him to the side as if to correct Jesus. And when he corrects him, Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. That's where we meet in Mark chapter 9 after Jesus tells the disciples that if they're really going to follow him, they're going to die too. Mark chapter 9, picking up in verse 1, we're going through verse 13. Then he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they led up and he led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, and one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anything with them, saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And then they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah did come first, does come first, and restores all things, Jesus replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him just as it was written about him. Verse 1, Then he said to them, This I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. It's very unique to read through this text. If anyone wants to find a place where people are arguing about any verse, this is a really good place to start. If you begin to go on YouTube and go down rabbit trails, those rabbits get dark fast. Because everyone likes to disagree about the Bible. 
Everyone likes to find places where they can uh, function and interact about scriptures to the point that they have passively removed themselves from the call of God on our lives to care for those around us, to care for our community, and to live as if Jesus matters. Because it's way more, it's way easier for us to live in light of a keyboard than actual the reality of what Jesus called us to. It's a very direct setup Jesus is giving us here. I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. The disciples were just told that they would walk with Jesus to death. And then he says, but just know, you'll get a glimpse. You'll get a glimpse. John's going to mention the idea of what he got to see. In John chapter 1, John's the only one of the disciples of the Gospels that do not give us a direct account of what takes place in this transfiguration. But John does say this about Jesus, that we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father who was full of grace and truth. Peter, who's also with him, says this, We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with Him on that holy mountain. In this passage, in this transfiguration, we are seeing a story as to who Jesus really is. Who He actually is. Not, not simply cloaked by all that is the, the earthly limitations that He had allowed to be placed on Himself. But Jesus, who He really, really is. And the disciples see this before they die. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. Why in the world would he keep taking these three men with him? Well, more than likely, there are a couple of things at play. One is, he probably liked them better. And that's okay. You just like some people better than others. That doesn't mean you don't love everyone. But these disciples were with Jesus a lot. There's an Old Testament reference as well to the idea that you need two to three witnesses when something happens. The Old Testament encourages taking two to three witnesses. And in the earthly ministry of Jesus, there are times where he takes Peter, James, and John to see incredible things. He takes them in, Mark chapter 5, to see the resurrection of the little girl. He's going to take them here and allow them to see him transfigured as to who he really is. Jesus allowing them to witness him giving glimpses, a small opening as to who God is, as to who he is. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer, shout out to those Bible launderers, on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. The Word of God is here. The Word of God right there in their midst. The one who we say that we align our lives with. When you read through the Old Testament, you've got the story of Moses. You've got the story of Elijah and the prophet. That's who he represents. Moses was as big of a deal as you could be in the Old Testament. For the Jewish people, Moses is the primary person that you see in scriptures even greater than Abraham Moses also is the one who provides for us the, the five books of the law Moses is the word of the one who writes down the word of God for the people, he has seen the glory of God as well, we see that on a mountain that Moses goes in and sees God's glory the voice of the Lord 
is represented by Elijah, the prophet. Because in the Old Testament, the prophets were the ones who would go into the midst of a people like us and they would say, this is the word of the Lord. Let me declare to you who God really is. Elijah also received a word from the Lord on a mountain. He, he got the whisper from God when he was afraid in a cave after he had seen God's great victory at Mount Carmel. They're there in the midst of... You have this 3-2-1 set up in the passage. You've got these three men, Peter, James, and John. You've got these two, Elijah and Moses. And they are all in the midst of Jesus. And Peter does what we do. He looks around, he notices that they're having a conversation as to what they're talking about. We are not sure. But he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good to be here. Duh. Jesus, really cool. Thanks for bringing us up the mountain. Why in the world would Peter choose to say this here? Verse 6 lets us know. He said this because he did not know what to say. He did not know what to say, so he started talking. You know that kid at your house who inserts his foot in his mouth when adults are talking? You may find this hard to believe. I was that kid. Peter does this in the midst of these two Old Testament prophets. I, he looks around and he says, I, I, I mean, it's, it's good for me to be here. Let me go further, Jesus, since I've let you know that I'm here. I'm going to build some booths. As to what he's going to build these booths with, we are not sure. But we're going to do some booth building right here in the midst. Let's set up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did this because he didn't know what to say either. So I'm going to start talking, start doing. It's interesting that people mention the festival of booths here. If you read any commentary about this passage, there's this Old Testament festival for the Jewish people. And the very festival that they would invite the Gentiles to be part of was the festival of booths. It's the only festival that Gentiles would come to. So this may be taking place because of where? We were just talking about Caesarea Philippi, a city that overlooks a, a large group of people who do not believe in Judaism or Yahweh. This may be foreshadowing of the work that Peter is going to have to do in his own heart eventually as he considers who the Gentiles are and how God loves for them. Regardless, Peter is really into this and the story of the Jewish people is we build booths to remember the cool stuff that God does and God's doing a cool thing right here. I mean, I've got Elijah. I've got the Word of God spoken. I've got Moses who is the written Word of God. And I've got Jesus who I get to hang out with. Let's build booths for every one of you. He wants everyone to see. Just can't stop talking. To have a moment where things are so overwhelming that you can do nothing but speak. It just seems to be a terrible plan. Why? Because Peter has already tripped over his tongue trying to redefine the death of Jesus. We struggle with a lack of trust. Peter has already announced that he doesn't really trust the plan of God revealed to him by Jesus. 
Peter would rather lead Jesus than follow him. How many of us, as we conjure up what our life should be in light of who God actually is, are really functioning in that way? Where we are attempting to lead God in certain directions as to what we really believe is the thing that we should be doing and why we should be doing it and how we should do it and how we should see it and how we should interpret it and we're not hearing who God really is to us. A cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son. Not Moses, awesome Moses from the Old Testament who wrote the books of the law. Not Elijah, the one who spoke for God. Not the one who got to ride into heaven. No, this is my son, is what he says. In all of the Bible, when you're reading it, all of Bible readers, it's in the name. It doesn't say we're Grace Bible Reader Church, but you tell me you read the Bible. In all of the Bible, wherever you happen to be reading, I would encourage you to take heart in this. Whether you're reading Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Peter or Paul or James or John or the three or the person who we believe wrote the book of Hebrews who we're not sure of, you are reading the words of Jesus. And if your understanding and interpretation of those words contradicts the character of Jesus, redefines the expectation of Jesus, takes attention away from the person of Jesus, it needs to be reevaluated, it needs to be reconsidered, it needs to be taken captive, and it may need to be thrown away. The Bible shows us Jesus. Jesus is the center of the universe. And we have this really bad habit of allowing other voices to take his place there. Whoever that voice is. And there are good voices that you listen to. I see who you quote on Facebook. There's some good people. But if they have taken the place of Jesus, we should reevaluate, reconsider, wrestle. He is the center of the universe. And our hearts, mine and yours, they're idol factories. And we want to make any and everything as important as Him. The problem with that approach is if we are saying something is as important as Jesus, we have inevitably diminished Jesus. When we elevate those things, we are elevating ourselves, we are diminishing Jesus and attempting to take the lead. It's problematic. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus because He's the center of this scriptural solar system. We had a project at Foundation Preparatory Academy a few weeks ago. Charlie's science class. He was told to make a moon. So, it was a group project. Charlie, his mother, Magnolia B., Helped out. I think Gus the dog put some paper mache on there. The moon, as you know, is this thing in the galaxy, in our solar system. And it glows. Very much like when we consider Moses and how he glows in this passage. But the, prop, the thing about the moon that we all know is that none of the light that emits from said moon are, is from the moon. It is a reflection of the sun. When we look into this text, 
And we begin to consider the glow of Moses, how he's glowing here, and how the prophet Elijah is glowing here. It's not because they're glowing, it's because of who they are in the midst of. And we see that in the Old Testament as well. When Moses experienced God in the temple, in the, in the tent, it's because he met with God and came out glowing, giving off a glow that did not belong to him otherwise. Jesus is the true Moses. Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the one who all of these scriptures have been taking our hearts toward. Why in the world would we ever try to take the lead there? Whenever you ascend a mountain, you've got to do something with it. You've got to come down it. They begin to come down the mountain. Maybe you don't. If you live there, stay. But anyone I know who lives on a mountain, they have to come for groceries because nobody takes groceries up there. Gulf Coast friends, mountains are these elevated things that we experience when we travel to certain parts of the country. As they're coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, this is a passage where we can run down rabbit trails with. Is there a simple, practical understanding of this? Maybe. It may just be that these guys continually mucked up every story they told. Can you imagine them trying to explain Moses, Elijah, and Jesus to people? Hold it. Keep it in. John, there's going to be a day when you're writing to what the church will be and not what you want it to be, and you need to say to them, I experienced the very glory of God. Peter, you're going to want me to run this world. Let me just run everything. And there's a day coming when you get to declare what you really experienced and not what you thought you experienced. They've seen His glory. They kept the word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. It's been talked about a few times in the passage. Is that even part of... As I think about this passage, I even wonder as to the conversation that Peter interrupted. I mean, we're told that the heroes of the Old Testament, that all of them by faith trusted in Jesus. Is there an explanation as to what this really is? I'm not sure. But I do know this. They have seen God's glory and now they're talking about rising from the dead. To rise from the dead, you have to die. They were very much into the transfiguration of Jesus. But there's what some call a disfiguration of Jesus. It starts in the garden and carries all the way to the cross. And you see the point and the counterpoint of these ideas. And, and, need, and we don't need to overlook one. Because both are at play when we are considering the Jesus who we meet in Scripture. At the transfiguration, you see the glory of God fully revealed. At, when Jesus goes into the garden, he takes these same three witnesses. And while they were mesmerized when Elijah and Moses showed up, when Jesus was grieving in the garden, they were bored. Bored to the point of sleep. At the transfiguration, they saw glory. In the garden, 
we see Jesus moving toward being disgraced. At the transfiguration, he's clothed in white. When he is crucified, his clothes will be shred apart. When Jesus is transfigured, they are sitting and they are watching as, as Jesus interacts with Moses and Elijah. The, as best they could understand, the whole Bible was right there with them. When he is disfigured, he is surrounded by murderers and thieves. When Jesus transfigured, there is a bright cloud. When Jesus crucified, darkness covers the land. But one thing remains. There is a declaration as to who he is. At the transfiguration, the voice of God from heaven said, This is my son. And when Jesus crucified, there will be a pagan soldier who says, Truly, this is the son of God. The mountain explains the hill. The hill explains the mountain. This is the same person. And when we align ourselves with Him, we are aligning ourselves with every aspect as to who He is. Verse 11. Why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? Uh, Elijah does come first. Elijah restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I'm going to tell you this. Elijah has come. And they did whatever they pleased to him. They plundered him. They beheaded him. Because Jesus is referencing the coming of John the Baptist. It was all written that that would happen. It happened to him. It happened to him because he had aligned himself with me. He had aligned himself with the full-blown glory of God which would reveal himself in power. And he was killed for it. Because following me is going to make that happen possibly. But God has given us a glimpse He's given believers a glimpse as to who he really is. For every person in this room who professes that Jesus is your Lord, the one who you trust, who you believe to be God, who you believe that when you open this book is speaking to you. He's God's Son. So listen to him. Listen to him when things are good. Listen to the things that God celebrates when you are given opportunity to do so. When you're scared, listen to him. When you're celebrating, listen to him. When you need strength, listen to him. Why? What if your glimpses of the glory of God in this very broken, sin-filled, sin-impacted world have been preparing you for something really, really hard And you need to remember that you have a voice that you can listen to in the midst of it. Today we take the cup 
we drink of the juice that will remember the broken body, of, the, the shed blood of Jesus. We will take of the bread to remember the broken body of Jesus. And Jesus says things to us, and I want us to listen. This is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember me. Listen. But don't just listen, respond to that. This is the blood of the new covenant, the promise that I've made. Remember me when you drink it. Just listen and respond. In a moment, the band's going to begin to play, and I invite you, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if you have trusted in His broken body, His shed blood, as your hope, then take the cup, drink, drink of the cup, take the cracker and eat the cracker, and remember and listen what, to what Jesus said to us here. That he, His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. If you need to chat with me, I'm in the back corner of the room where I spend a good bit of time doing our next song. If you would like to have someone pray with you, pray over you, I would love to do that. There's some of you in Texas and said, hey, I want to talk to you after worship. That's great. I would love to interact with you over the hope that Jesus has provided. If you've never trusted in Jesus, I'm going to ask for you not to eat of this cup, not to drink of this cup or eat of this bread. Because this is something that we as a family do to celebrate that we have been invited to listen to God. And if you've never listened enough to trust Him, just, just don't. Please don't. This is what we do as a family to remember that God has said to us, broken body, shed blood, listen to me. I want to pray for us. The band's going to get in place. And if you need me, again, I'm available for you. Lord, thank you for letting us lead these people. Thank you for allowing us to be in relationship with you through your broken body, through your shed blood. Jesus, right now, I pray that we are good listeners. Lord, I pray that we are even evaluating our own hearts as to what really happens to be leading us right now. And I pray that, well, who is leading us is you. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, that we see you, that we trust you, that we believe you, that we have placed our hope and faith in you. So, Lord... As we take of the bread and drink of the cup today, would we listen and remember like you've instructed us to? Remembering that our sins have been dealt with wholly. Would we listen to you, Jesus? We ask all of this in your powerful.